Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Fine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. Champagne problems. You ever had those tap lines, listener? They're good problems to have, basically, and I'm sorry, what's that? Uh-huh, got it. Okay, folks, I've just been informed by Tapline's very real legal department that champagne is a protected designation of origin, and therefore, we're not allowed to use the term champagne problems on air without express written permission from France. Like, all of France. But what should we call them instead? Spotted cow problems would work. In 2002, Wisconsin's New Glarus Brewing Company, makers of that beloved farmhouse ale, announced it'd be pulling out of the Illinois market next door. Six months later, it was gone. The decision shocked and even angered some folks on the wrong side of the cheddar curtain and flew in the face of the contemporary expansionist wisdom that governed the craft brewing industry at that time. But husband and wife team Deb and Daniel Carey had spotted cow problems. Drinkers in their home state were buying a whole lot of their beers and they simply couldn't brew enough to keep up with demand in the state next door. So they decided not to. These days, you can only get Spotted Cow, Moon Man, and the rest of New Glarus's award-winning portfolio in Wisconsin. Far from hindering the brewery's growth, the decision to go deep rather than broad allowed Deb and Daniel, who joins us today on Taplines, to grow their company sustainably and ensure the quality of the product, such that 20 years later, it's a touchstone for an industry looking for ways to retrench as growth slows. It's brewmaster Daniel Carey, it's Spotted Cow, it's how New Glarus got big by staying small, and it's all right here right now on Vine Pairs Tap Lines. Dan Carey, brewmaster at New Glarus, thank you so much for joining us here on Tap Lines today. It's my pleasure, Dave. Dan, you're joining us uh, from behind the Cheddar Curtain, New Glarus, Wisconsin. <laughs> it's a name that rings out to uh, thousands, no, millions of craft beer enthusiasts uh, around the country uh, who who crave the delicious, fluffy, nourishing, refreshing taste of Spotted Cow Farmhouse Ale. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, why that name looms so large. Of course, your business has had a tremendous amount of success uh, uh, producing you know, the beers over the years since Gosh, 1993, so we're coming up on a full That's 30. Right. This is the 30th anniversary for you guys, and congrats That's right. to that. That's right. Uh, Dan, Brewmaster uh, at, at New Glarus, how does 30 feel? Uh, like the Grateful Dead say, it's been a long, strange trip. That's for sure. It has <laughs> uh, not been without its bumps. I bet. I bet, man. But you've uh, you've weathered the storm many times over, along with your wife, the founder and president of New Glarus, Deb Carey, a name that also uh, looms pretty large in the industry. Uh, a lot of folks know you and sing your praises. You're in books like The Audacity of Hops. You make appearances. You've been in this industry for a long time, uh, and you know you have the track record to show for it. Dan, we had you on tap lines today to talk about the success of New Glarus and of Spotted Cow, that beloved farmhouse ale that gets drinkers' minds, you know, dreaming of that beautiful head and the and the fantastic pour. But also, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about a, a turning point in New Glarus's business that comes along about a decade in. Now we're three decades in, but just a decade in, you guys made a really interesting decision that I think at the time was maybe a little bit more unusual uh, than it has since become. And with the benefit of hindsight, uh, you guys wound up looking uh, looking pretty savvy about 
understanding the value of a, a local brand that's very deeply connected to one place rather than a, uh, a national or a regional brand that's more spread out uh, broadly but doesn't have that deep, deep connection. Um, and that, you know, that's, I think, where we should pick up the story because, like I said uh, right before we started recording here, um, New Glarus's decision in 2003 to pull back to go Wisconsin only um, turns out to be, uh, with hindsight being 2020, a pretty prescient move. Let's let's talk about that. Let's get right into it. How how does that come about? You're 10 years in. You're in Illinois, and uh, and things are going well, but they're going too well, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I guess you could say that it starts with a philosophy of what a brewery is. Um, and I'll talk about that second, but the more uh, immediate reasons for the decision to pull back was simply that we were out of capacity at our brewery. We had a small brewery and we were selling as much beer as we could make. Um, and as as you probably know, every barrel of capacity that you add costs more or less $200. Mm. So it's very expensive to add capacity. And in those days, like most breweries, we were growing at 30, 40, 50% a year um, and having a hard time keeping up. And it's not only the cost of, of growing your business, but every time you go through a stair step up in capacity, your, your way of doing business changes, your, mm. your manning changes, your personnel, your, um, uh, your systems, your SOPs, um, how you structure the business has to adapt because when you're a small brewery, you pretty much do everything on your own. You know exactly what's in uh, all of the tanks and you know where the fermentations are at. But as you get bigger, that's not possible. So you need systems. And that's, that's, that takes a lot of effort. So that was happening at the same time that uh, my wife was really more or less, there was another salesperson, but she was doing most of the sales. And our we have two daughters and they were you know, grammar school and junior high at that point. So we were selling beer in Chicago uh, and in Northern Illinois. And she used to drive down to Chicago. It's about a three hour drive. Mm -hmm. So she'd get up in the morning, she'd uh, get the kids going, you know, make them lunch, uh, uh, cook them breakfast. And then she would start driving down to Chicago. She'd visit accounts and then she would drive back home uh, to spend time with the kids before they'd go to bed. And it's a lot of work to do that. Chicago is not a yeah. town to drive around in. But the real problem was that the accounts in Chicago were and are problematic. It's the second largest uh, beer market in the country. And I really blame the large brewers because they pretty much give away beer down there. Uh, and so the bar owners are, are expect that they expect to get beer for free. Mm -hmm. So she would go into taverns and, uh, they'd say, yeah, we'll, we'll take your beer, but what are you going to give us? Uh, you know, in most cases that's illegal, but that doesn't stop anybody for asking. Sure. Wink, and, wink, nudge, and, nudge. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you ask in a certain way, but as a small brewer, it's, it, it was impossible for us to give away beer. Why would we do that? Yeah. Why would we drive all the way to Chicago and give away beer? So she came to me and she said, you know, uh, you're out of capacity and we have demand in Wisconsin. I'm going to pull out of Chicago. We, we were doing really well in Northern Illinois. We had, uh, we had beer, sold beer in New York state. We had sold beer in Oregon at that point. And she said, I'm going to pull back because, uh, tired of traveling, uh, to these places and being 
you know, asked to give away free beer. Sure. So let's pull back to Wisconsin and then you'll have the capacity that you need to sell beer in Wisconsin. And it was like an epiphany moment for her. That is totally her uh, vision. I think at that point, I, I couldn't think of anybody that was imagining a really low, hyper local local brewery. Now, of course, it's more common. But yeah. when she when she did that, she called the wholesalers in Chicago and Illinois and said, "We're going to pull back. We don't have capacity for you." All hell broke loose. Um, <laughs> the wholesalers, uh, well, yeah, the wholesalers threatened to sue us, and they made comments like, "If you ever decide to come back." to Chicago, you're never going to sell a, a can of beer or a mm. bottle of beer here. So there was threats and accusations and insinuations, and it was pretty ugly. And also the media, the press, was uh, saying how naive, how stupid, how wasteful we were to give up on the second biggest market in the country and sure. how naive we were. But uh, Deb stuck to her guns and um, wasn't easy, and um, we just kept moving forward. Fantastic. Let's unpack the uh, the wholesaler aspect of it, because I think that's something that has flown uh, under the radar, maybe for a lot of drinkers as craft beers become more popular. Obviously, in the industry or people like me who cover the industry, we, we think a lot about the middle tier. We think a lot about their relationship to the supplier and also to the retailer and, and their, their piece in the puzzle. Um, when when you heard feedback from those wholesalers and why they were frustrated with new glares, on one hand, it's like, well, why, wait, hang on a second. Why do you care? Uh, you've got all these beers in your portfolio. Um, you know, what are you worried about? But on the other, um, it sounds like they felt, did, did you get the sense that it was because they felt spurned or because they thought you were trying to wiggle out of uh, like a franchise agreement to then come back in with another wholesaler? Like, where was that animosity coming from? I, 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 Dave, I think you hit uh, the nail on the head. It was both. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was both. Um, and I think there's an ego thing there. Sure. That, uh, they sure. want us to pull out, but I, I think you, 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 well said, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. I love, uh, describing this as Deb's vision and it not being necessarily very popular at the time. Daniel, I wanted to ask you if you could give us a sense. I mean, now obviously it's 2023. So we're talking about 20 years after this decision. Uh, cause I think it was February, 2023. If, if the reports that I read were correct, when you guys made the, the break with, with Illinois, um, yeah. and, and that's 30 years after your business started, but in 2003, tell me just how unusual this felt, or maybe how much it felt like you guys were going out on a limb. Like this was a moment when craft beer was starting, you know, it had dipped a little bit in the late nineties and there was a little bit of, you know, kind of a, a, a deflating of the market, but now it was back on the upswing a little bit. Tell me about this idea of saying no unlimited growth or crazy growth isn't necessarily good. Let's pump the brakes and decide. What did that feel like uh, for you guys who have peers in the industry that are pursuing more aggressive expansion plans that are that are saying, no, hey, we're going to other states and we're, we're going to get bigger and bigger? Um, you, you must have seen peers doing something the opposite of what you guys were doing. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, yeah, you're 100% right. Um, it used to be going to craft brewer conferences. Uh, every, every country's brewers have a different touchstone. And in, in American craft beer, whenever I would go to a craft brewers conference, um, you know, when you meet somebody on the street, how are you doing today? At craft brewers conference is how, how much are you up this year? So it was a <laughs> game to say, you know, well, we're, we're up 10%. Well, we're up 80%. 
So there was this strange uh, uh, time period. And brewers don't don't ask that anymore. Yeah. But it, for many years, that was the introductory question. Wow. So Deb has always been, um, and this is not me being clever. This is 100% Deb. And she has a saying. She says that um, profits are sanity, volume is vanity, meaning that, I love that. Um, it's not a question of how much beer you sell. It's a question of what's your profit per barrel sold. Now, obviously, in the beer business, the secret is, of course, is you have to cover your overhead, which in a brewery is very high. So once you cover your overhead, you can do pretty well on every barrel that's sold. But I alluded to this a moment ago that we've been in the brewing industry since the 1980s. And in the early 80s, breweries were closing at a very high rate and they were struggling. Um, Regional breweries, uh, breweries like Walters here in Wisconsin, I mean, they were real entities selling hundreds of thousands of barrels of beer, but they went out of business. Sure. And G. Heilman in La Crosse, Wisconsin, yep. they were selling millions of barrels of beer and losing a couple of bucks for every barrel of beer that wow. they sold yeah, yeah. while they're giving away beer in Chicago. And while they're getting nailed by Anheuser-Busch and Miller, who then had Philip Morris money, who's coming real strong at them. Yep, sure. That's right. So, so we come from a time when we know, when we saw very, very large breweries, when we were, you know, a 5,000 barrel brewery, breweries selling hundreds of thousands of barrels, if not millions of barrels of beer and, and losing money. That's a scary place to be in. Yeah. 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 Cause they can't shut down the line yeah, either. Right. They can't afford to, they've got to keep beer moving through the line. So they can't even afford, you know, it's not like they can press pause and figure out a new business model. <laughs> yeah. Because of the infamous overhead, they sure, cover sure. their overhead. Yeah, yeah. So they're brewing beer to cover their overhead and nothing more. Um, and another thing that Deb always says is size is a guy thing; it's not important. Um, and so she's always been somewhat contrary, has a unique vision about what our business is, and the growth for the sake of growth is not necessarily a good idea. So for example, if we were a restaurant and we were doing well and we had line, lines outside uh, in the evening and people have to take a long time to get reservations, someone might say, well, why don't you franchise? Why don't you franchise? Well, we're, we're a restaurant and we're not a franchise. We're, so we are brewers. And so Deb built this brewery for me to be a brewer. So it's not, it was never the intention to sell lots of beer, uh, create a profit and loss statement with big numbers so that we could sell the brewery. And some people, that's what some entrepreneurs do, but we envision this brewery to be here for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the only way to do that is, is, to, is to run things deep and lean. So for example, we only, we have more people working in our lab than we do salespeople. We'll sell 240,000 barrels of beer this year, and I think we have six salespeople. Wow. Um, so we're very yep. lean, we're very fiscally responsible, and taking beer, a box of beer, and shipping it across the country, it, it's not a logical thing to do. Um, sure. Beer is heavy. Uh, and this idea is obviously a new idea, it came out. Uh, you know, with the railroads and then after World War II, it really started to go into hyperspeed. But 
say, 100 years ago, which was more the norm, the local breweries were were the way that beer was sold. Mm-hmm. And before television, I, I think there's been more time where the local breweries have been important. And the other thing that's happened is, is as Deb was picking up on, the market has changed and people are uh, isolated. They're alone. Uh, they don't have really communities. So having a local entity gives people comfort. Uh, that's something they can identify with. That's their special thing. Uh, and you can't have that with a national shipper. Yeah. And lastly, walk in any liquor store or any grocery store anywhere in the United States, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of beer options. And if we were to sell in 50 states, we would just be another beer on sure. the shelf. And we haven't even talked about flavor stability, which is um, a tough thing. I think there's a lot of breweries out there. And of course, we won't name names, but... Uh, that's maybe not as much of a priority for some brewers that are pursuing a more growth-oriented model. I mean, you're talking about getting beer on the shelves, routing it through off-premise channels as far away as possible to open those new markets to demonstrate that growth quarter over quarter, um, whether that's because you have uh, uh, private equity investors that are are expecting that growth, that you've promised that growth, or because you have public shareholders who are saying, hey, well, we want to see growth every quarter or whatever. Those are different pressures than the yes. ones that, that uh, a brewery like New Glarus is facing. You guys have a little bit more latitude. Of course, you have to run a solvent business and you have, you know, investors that you answer to and, and uh, as yes. well, but you have more control over over uh, the level of discipline you bring to the conversation about growth than, than maybe other, uh, other folks in the business. So you can be more concerned about stability of flavor, of freshness of product, of, of making sure that when people see spotted cow on one end of Wisconsin, it tastes just as good as if it does on the other and it's not out of code or whatever. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. right. And that, that also plays into wholesaler relationships because we have very strong relationships with our wholesalers in the state. Our salespeople visit every single account. We have records on every single account. We meet with our wholesalers once a year and discuss these things. And we know where the numbers are. We know how many draft lines we have in each account. We know what the sales velocity is each account. We know what our problem accounts are. And it really comes down to communication with wholesalers because wholesalers can perform really well if directions are clear and concise and um Bonuses, for example, are paid on performance and performance expectations are clear and the goals are clear. And it works really well when you have a small, tight ship. But if you're in 50 uh, states with, you know, 20, 30 wholesalers in each state, it becomes very difficult inexpensive inexpensive yeah i mean that's a lot of driving to chicago from wisconsin is one thing flying a 50 states from wisconsin is there 49 states from yes. wisconsin is a, is a whole different ball game uh and to your point dan and i thought this was a really good sort of way of sort of framing it up for listeners who maybe love spotted cow or maybe love the beer industry generally but don't necessarily um grasp why new glarus wouldn't expand you made the point earlier that even you know back in 2003 you're starting to have success, you're seeing growth, you're adding capacity, um, but you're already at capacity and over capacity with just the markets you're in. Hey, why not franchise? Hey, why not expand? And you made a point earlier that I just want to emphasize, which is that, well, you wanted to be a brewer. You you didn't want to manage, you know, a, a distributed 
manufacturing network of, you know, plants or of contract brewers in other states that are put, you know, would be doing spotted cow for you up to your, up to your mash bill or whatever. Um, it, yeah. It's a totally different yep. set of, it's a totally different acumen, right? It's like you, you came into yes. it to do one thing. <laughs> of course, you're not necessarily going to be good at or be interested in doing the other. In 2023, I think a lot more people are more amenable uh, or sympathetic to the idea of like, hey, you know, endless growth is not necessarily good. You shouldn't just be hustling all the time. Not everyone is good at everything. But in 2003, especially in the beer industry, again, like that was that was not not the dominant uh, or in the craft beer industry, that was not the dominant way of thinking. Uh, and so I, you know, a lot of credit, of course, to your wife, uh, Deb, the founder, uh, for seeing sort of the forest and the trees there or the forest for the trees there. But I find it remarkable. And I think a lot of other people do that. This was the move at the time. Can we talk, uh, barrels? If you remember, like, where were you guys at in 2003? You have any recollection for what volume you guys were doing? Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if I try to recreate, uh, it was 10 years into it. I bet we were probably in the uh, 20,000 barrel-ish mm-hmm. capacity range. Mm-hmm. So one-tenth or less than one-tenth what we are now. Wow. And so that talk about proof positive. I mean, obviously you can't see the future at that time, but looking back on it, there's, you know, you talked about sort of some some flack that you guys took from wholesalers. You talked about yeah. folks in the media, uh, sort of armchair uh, expert types who are yeah, saying, well, right. they're, they're looking a gift horse in the mouth here. What are they doing? Yes. Uh, not being yes. able to make enough beer to sell it is a good problem to have. These these fools in New Glarus are going to are going to regret this. No regrets, huh, yes. Daniel? <laughs> well, yeah, that's for sure. I mean, it's. It, it, the, the problem is, is you have to, if we understand human nature, we are in a lot of ways, we're, we're tribal. We're, we're, we have draft horses here at our brewery and, and I watch the horses and the horses being herd animals, when one bolts, they all bolt. And, and, and we humans, when we have a breakout person that does something unique, then everybody follows and it becomes the accepted way to do things. So, um, Brewers have a tendency to follow the norm and the idea of what a craft brewery is, that, that concept has, has changed over the years. And um, when we started the brewery in 1993 in Wisconsin, craft brewers made amber lagers. Mm. And that's what the successful craft beer was. On the West Coast, if you started a craft brewery, you made uh, a pale ale, a stout and a porter. And, and maybe you'd make like a, the infamous golden ale or a Kolsch right. for the Budweiser drinkers. And that's what that's what you were supposed to do. Now, when you start a craft brewery, you make an IPA, preferably five or six of them. But that's <laughs> what brewers supposed to do. So um, we never followed the herd. So when everybody bolts one way, we don't normally follow. For example, a few three years ago, when everybody was making seltzer. Sure. Um, we, and, and that was going to be the next big thing. And, and you know, it was going to take the world by storm, et cetera, et cetera. We didn't bite uh, because we're brewers. In my opinion, seltzer is prison hooch. But um, <laughs> you have to know who you are. Like you said, you have to know your strengths and you have to play to your strengths. And our, mes- our mission and our message and our decision-making process 
has been razor focused and has not deviated. Our goal has always been to make the best beer that we can, to make it as shelf stable as best we can, and to have clear and concise communications with our wholesalers. And uh, that has driven us methodically day by day. Uh, Deb gave me a, a postcard when we started the brewery that said, every great journey begins with the first step. And so it's more about putting your foot in front of the other, not about um, what you're gonna do by the end of this quarter. I mean, I, I, I like to run races. I run, run half marathons and we're, we're running a marathon, not a hundred meter dash. And it's a different yeah. way of looking at things, different decision-making tree. Yeah. Yeah. And has been proven out uh, in, in the case of New Glarus, very, a lot of success, as we just described the volume, even though profits are sanity, volume is vanity. Uh, volume still does tell a story about where the brewery is going. I mean, you know, you're not in the business yes. of making beer to dump it. I know sometimes breweries get into that situation, but uh, for the most yes. part, directionally speaking, uh, volume is going to increase as, you know, and is going to be an indicator of the health of the brewery. If that number is going up. That's, that's you, true. Year over year. Yeah. No, I love that, uh, that phrase. <laughs> Profits are sanity. Volume is vanity. Uh, uh, and size is a guy thing. Yeah. There's there's a lot of gems that Deb has, has yeah. served up over the years. Yeah. I like this. Um, Daniel, I want to talk about sort of the knock-on effect of this, this decision to pull back in 2000, uh, late 2002, and it takes effect in 2003. You guys retrench in Wisconsin. Um, you know, you go Wisconsin only. Because at that point, New York and Oregon were off the table, correct? Like you guys had stopped selling. Pretty yeah, much. yeah. Okay, cool. You Wisconsin only. And so the way a lot of more modern, you know, contemporary craft beer drinkers who have come to the segment and have become enthusiasts maybe later that decade or early the following decade and, you know, the, the 20 teens or so, New Glarus and, uh, and its, you know, sort of most iconic or beloved beer, Spotted Cow, has become very well known because it is not easy to get anywhere besides Wisconsin. And I don't get the sense, having read contemporary news reports, that this was an intentional, uh, uh, you know, sort of engineering scarcity uh, effect that you guys made here. It seems to have just been a coincidence. I'm curious, did you think at the time, like, you know, obviously scarcity to some extent is maybe beneficial for products, there weren't a lot of examples of this in the beer industry, but maybe in other industries, you know, you see sort of how scarcity drives up demand. Did that seem like it might be a silver lining of this decision? Was that even on your mind at the time? Uh, not not really. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, creation of scarcity was not the Coors effect was never really effect, uh, yeah, yeah, right. on our, our radar. That was not something that we considered because the amount of beer that we sell at, say, uh, you know, border liquor stores on the way to Chicago or the way to Minneapolis is a relatively small part of our business. Mm -hmm. So uh, people taking beer out of state, it, it's it's uh, it, it's flattering. But it, if we were to rely on that, I don't think we would be successful. Wisconsin is a somewhat of a unique place. And uh, I'm originally from San Francisco, but. Deb, Deb was born and raised in uh, in Wisconsin. She's originally from Milwaukee. And so she understands Wisconsin. And, uh, for example, uh, I went out uh, to visit a brewery in California, and I was in a taxi, and the taxi driver said, where are you from? I said, I'm from Wisconsin. He goes, oh, I love the Green Bay Packers. 
I said, are you from Wisconsin? No, no, no. I'm from California, but I just, I just love the Packers. Yeah. And so there's something unique about Wisconsin. And when I travel around, I see expat bars uh, around the country for Wisconsin and Ireland. Obviously, every town has an Irish bar, and and many many cities have Wisconsin expat bars where people get together and they watch the uh, UW Wisconsin Badgers on Saturday and the Packers play on uh, on Sunday, and they, they eat cheese curds and bratwurst and all the kind of the Wisconsin uh, things. And uh, so Wisconsin is very parochial. Deb says Wisconsin is parochial in its in their buying habits. They like to support local things. And so it for us, it was a natural fit. For her, it, it, it felt comfortable that if you're in Wisconsin, this is your beer. And maybe that wouldn't work in other places, but it certainly worked in Wisconsin. So our model fits because of where we're at. And every, every brewer around the world has to look at their unique situation and be clever, but it may not be exactly what we're doing, but you have to kind of um, play the hands you're dealt. Yeah. Yeah. And Wisconsin, of course, uh, uh, one of the richer drinking cultures uh, state by state in the country, um, uh, not just in terms of culture, in terms of volume. Uh, but I I remember you mentioned the the border liquor stores, the border, uh, the border shops where you see some sales. I myself was in Milwaukee, uh, maybe three years ago and I flew into Chicago as many do. And I drove up and I stopped at, you probably know where the Mars cheese castle, uh, where it may as well be a cathedral to new Glarus. It may as well be the new Glarus cheese castle because the beauty, like the stacks, (laughs) the stacks and stacks of, uh, of new Glarus beers there. But it's to your point, again, this goes back to vanity and, and, you know, knowing your numbers and knowing where your core business is, uh, if that's not actually doing much volume, even though it is such a, a cathedral to the beer, uh, and you know it, it's always got a front and center display there, um, then to your point, man, like yeah, you could get you could get yourself lost with that type of exciting flattery uh, and and lead yourself into a market that maybe you know doesn't have that deep thirst for new Glarus. It's just like oh, it's a novelty. I'll grab one on on my way in or out of Wisconsin. Uh, and everyone's always going to pick it up there. But if you're, if you're not doing that much uh, business on those border liquor stores, then of course it doesn't make sense to, to try to push beyond those borders. Do you know, Daniel, at this point, what your breakdown is in terms of like, I don't know if you would even segment those out, like the border liquor stores versus like the overall volume. It can't, it must be negligible. Yeah. It's, it's in the low, low one, two, three percent type of uh, amount of beer that's that's moved yeah. by you know this by by summer tourists, for example. I right. I went to a, um, a visit a startup distillery here in Wisconsin, and uh, the principal said, "Well, the reason you guys do so well is because uh, people are are you only sell in state, and people are taking it out of state." And I said, "Oh, if, if you think that's the key to our success." Is that what you're going to do with your distillery? Are you only going to sell in Wisconsin? <laughs> and he said, well, well, no, we're not going to do that. So, um, you know, when if someone was to say that, I'd say, oh, give it a shot. Bring it on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you, yeah, right. I mean, that's probably not the right reason to go down that path. You guys have certainly proved there's a path there 
to go deep instead of broad, but you want to do it with a product that's going to stand the test of time and that's going to uh, uh, attract a repeat local customer, not one that's built on uh, hype and scarcity that you know takes a lot of a lot of effort yeah. to continually re-engineer, right? <laughs> Well, the, the problem with being in the brewing business, the problem with being the darling du jour is, is that passes. Mm. Um, you're generating chatter uh, among customers or on the Internet as the new darling. If you go up quick, you're probably going to go down quick because there's always a new kid coming. And uh, that's not what that's not the game we want to play. Yeah, there's a horizon on that always. Right. If you're chasing trends. And to some extent, obviously, beverage alcohol, like any other consumer packaged good, are going to have some trends that are going to be more substantial and are going to sort of, you know, light beer, for example, is is something that maybe uh, in, what was it, 75 when Miller introduced uh, the light beer from Miller, everyone, you know, over in St. Louis, they they poo-pooed it as just a quick fad, and then of yeah. course it was yeah, not. Right. And eventually, we got Budweiser, yeah. Budweiser Light in 1982, and then Bud Light in 1984, yeah. right? But yeah, um, that natural light, uh, natural, natural light, light first. That's right. That's right. First one. Yeah. yeah. Were you ever brewing that? You yeah. used to brew way back when you were at Anheuser oh, yeah. Bush, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I brewed a lot of light beer. Not in St. Louis, right? Where were you brewing? No, I was in Fort Collins. Fort Colorado. Collins. Yeah, yeah. So there are some trends, in other words, that do reshape the industry and do become legitimate, you know, sort of segments on their own uh, on their own merit. But then, you know, I think more recently we've seen uh, in the in the brewing industry, um, really in the last five years or so, uh, I think the speed at which fads appear and you know uh, sort of evaporate has really really ratcheted up deb did a study where where the uh, because the whole every year the wholesalers are interested in a new whatever it might be right a new a new type of beer alcoholic beverage and and so she she got out the data and she made a graph of volume versus time and and these these um Smirnoff Ice or Zima or or uh, California Cooler, sure. all of these kind of they, they go like they they have a life, and the life is maybe I don't know three four years. Maybe, but yeah. there's always one coming up, and this means that there's always a certain level of other alternative beverages to beer, and they make up whatever five ten percent of mm-hmm. the industry. But they're not the same beer. Zima's gone. California Cooler's gone. Smirnoff Ice is gone. Matilda but, Bay. But, you know, yeah, now yeah, we have, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we we have Truly or, or yeah. you know, alcoholic iced tea. But but so so they're coming and going. So if we were to join into that, we might be able to garner some sales and be part of a wave. But it's going to go away. And beer, although at this you know at this particular time is not a growing segment. It is a segment that is robust and will stand the test of time. Yeah. It's been around for, you know, whatever, thousands of years, uh, or at least in the current current way, it's been around for hundreds of years. And um, we're going to stay focused uh, on, on what we do best. I really love the sort of frame that you've kind of laid out there because I do think it's really, um, again, something that is maybe hidden to the casual drinker who likes craft beer, but doesn't necessarily understand the tensions that sort of the push and pull that dictate the way the industry goes. <laughs> yeah. But I'm curious. Dave, that's a good way of saying yeah. tensions. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, friendly disagreements, right? <laughs> uh, but I'm curious, yeah. 
Um, if you could maybe articulate, uh, or, or from your own experience, post 2003, you're, you're only in Wisconsin. The business is still growing. You're having a lot of success with Spotted Cow and the rest of the portfolio. Um, and as we enter what would later we would look back and see as kind of craft beers, American heyday, where everyone's saying, uh, you know, 20% by 2020 and, um, everyone's putting on bear, everyone's greeting each other by asking how much they're up year over year. Um, I imagine that you received maybe uh, not, not pressure necessarily, but I got to imagine that your wholesalers in Wisconsin were saying, Hey, when are you doing the next thing? Hey, everyone's doing one of these. Yeah. Can we get one yes. of these from New Glarus? Like, could you, if you yeah. would speak to that a little bit, Daniel, like some of that conversation can be productive because like you said, you have good wholesale partners and, and they are closer to the retailer. They, they, you know, a good wholesaler can add value to the chain. Right. Um, but I'd, I'd love to hear, and I'm sure my listeners would love to hear how you sort of took that feedback in, looked what was in the market and decided whether or not the new, the hot new thing made sense as a new Glarus thing. Yeah. You, you, you speak to a, a real, uh, attention is right. Uh, so, so we have, you know, a group of wholesalers say more or less 18 wholesalers. And so when something is hot, uh, maybe it's four packs or maybe it's whatever that 19.2 ounce cans. And, and, and the, the wholesalers are like, you gotta, you gotta do this. You gotta jump on this. This is hot. This is where, this is where the market's going. You yep. jump on it. And, and, and Dave, as you alluded to, sometimes those things do take like light beer did. Um, but it, it's a tough fight. It's an argument. There's oftentimes yelling on the phone. Um, and one thing that I can say about Deb is that she's, she, she has a vision, she has a direction and she sticks with that direction. She doesn't deviate. And so it means that she has sometimes very tough conversations with wholesalers. I remember back in the day, people used to say, put your husband on the phone. I want to talk to who's in charge. No, really? Uh, so, oh yeah. I, oh God, I, help him. <laughs> I, 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 I have a, my, my, my daughter's our, is our architect. She's our project manager. My daughter's a licensed architect. And I watch, I watch her and, and my wife interact in the world and misogyny and sexism is it's pretty shocking when sure. you're a fly on the wall and you watch these things go down. But but that's that's really an, another story. Um, one of the reasons that we minimize our SKUs and we don't follow fads is is that when we set up our packaging line, for example, I mean a project that might cost five million dollars for a new packaging line. We have we do twelve ounce cans or twelve ounce bottles. Yep. We have one six pack. We have one box and we print the name of the beer on the side of the box. So our inventory is um, very lean. We don't, we don't, you know, if you have a brewery and you're making like we do 20 different brands a year and you ask for a different six pack and a different case box, it becomes extremely expensive because your order sizes are very small and um, you end up running out or you end up with waste, sure. which is very expensive. But since we have one six pack and one mother carton uh, and one 12 pack box for cans, et cetera, our inventory is very lean and we can change what we're going to package any, any, we could get halfway through the day and say, let's switch around and make moon man now when we don't have to worry about our inventory packaging material. Plus when we go to a supplier, our orders are huge because we're getting one 
not 20 right. or 30. Right. And I can tell you that cardboard uh, vendors, manufacturers, they hate the, you know, the, the this and that and the, and the, and the, the crazy inventory that goes with that. So, so it's a business decision. It's, it's a marketing decision to not chase a fad, but it's also a, a decision of economies so that we're again, keeping our cost of business low, yeah, which yeah. means that we can be more efficient. And then, and then we, we can, we can spend money on important things like, uh, like malt and hops sure. or, or paying people a living wage sure. or, or health insurance. I mean, Amen if, to if that. you know how much money we spend on health insurance, uh, it, it's obscene. I mean, <laughs> millions of dollars a year on health insurance. Of course. And, yeah, yeah. You know, whenever a politician will come in to meet with them, she'll say, look in Europe, Companies are not carrying that burden of spending millions of dollars, but we are. Okay, you might have your your own opinions about that, but that certainly affects the bottom line. So we'd rather sure, put the sure, money right. there. We'd rather buy people health insurance than have a different six pack for all twenty different brands. Hey, man, I would make that trade uh, every time just because you don't have the nineteen point two ounce stovepipe cans uh, of spotted cow available for me at the local convenience store. I can live with that if that yeah. means that everyone gets health insurance. Yeah, I, well, I, uh, and, I commend and, I commend the decision. <laughs> and, and, and frankly, uh, beer is just between me and you and everybody who's listening. Beer is a beverage of moderation. Nineteen point two ounce can. Eh, I don't know about that. You make a good point, Daniel. I mean, I think like, uh, and this is uh, I suppose a little bit beyond the scope of, of Spotted Cow and New Glarus, but we talk about a lot on the on our and in, in our newsroom um, about sort of how these trends are are chasing growth which is there by the way uh, that's the that's the area that's growing see stores uh bigger pa- you know bigger bigger single serve package that is undeniably where the growth is but there are there are historical examples of chasing growth to uh negative ends to ultimately like bad outcomes the one that comes to mind most uh immediately is is malt liquor in the 80s um, yes. You know, you see all the, yes. the the industry sees all the growth there. Um, they double down on the neighborhoods where it's growing. Of course, that is the that tends to be lower income neighborhoods, tends to be black drinkers um, that have outsized over index on the social ills related to overconsumption of alcohol. And all of a sudden you have a um, you have a political and cultural disaster on your hands. And gee, I don't know how we got here. We were just looking at the spreadsheets, man. You know, like uh, yeah. we were seeing all that growth there. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I can't speak to, to that issue, but I can no, say no, no. That, yeah, yeah. That, that Deb often will say that there is a segment of the of the beer drinking public that is looking for the most alcohol per dollar spent. And so you're right. In the 70s and 80s, uh, you know, Schlitz malt liquor uh, and Colt 45 and King Cobra sure. came later. But these beers, you know, it's basically beer yep. with, yeah, with, with alcohol, with sugar added to it to right. increase the alcohols. All all folks, you know, that, that are looking for more alcohol per dollar spent. It's not we want people to go to our beer for more taste per dollar spent. And um Alcoholism is a problem, uh, and it's not something that we want to promote. So I think it's a, as a brewer, it's an immoral way to make a buck. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, Daniel, I want to sort of run something by you here because what we're seeing now in 2023, again, 30 year, you're you're on your 30th anniversary uh, at New Glarus, and um, 
the industry obviously has changed a tremendous amount since 1993. I mean, it's almost yeah, impossible sure. to quantify. Yes. Uh, you know, you can you can kind of look at the number of breweries. We're up to about 9,700. I'm guessing in 93, maybe the U.S. is at 550-ish. Yeah. You know, like sure. we're talking about not many. Um, so that's one way of quantifying it. But there's just so much more dimension to it. Um, and what we've seen more recently in uh, in the craft beer industry is that as growth has slowed and it's more or less flat, depending on how you slice the numbers, sure. I get the updates from sure. the Brewers Association's Bart Watson and, and you know, he kind of runs job. us through it as I'm sure he yeah. he does a fantastic job. Bart is a uh, I'm going to try to get him on tap lines one of these days to uh, to talk about something or other. We just got to figure out the right episode. But um you know, as growth has kind of flattened out, um, you make the point that beer is going to be in it for the long haul. Beer has a strong value proposition. I believe that. I don't really think that anyone's going to, uh, the the U.S. is going to stop drinking beer. But as that growth has slowed, you see some breweries, um, some really successful breweries, start to rethink about what their footprint looks like, what their what their volume should look like. I'm thinking, you know, one of the examples that comes to mind is uh, Lost Abbey out in San Diego um, just in like November of this past year um, says, you know what, we this is not a business that we really can continue to sustain the way we want to. We're going to we're going to scale back. We're going to right size, you yeah. know, quote unquote, what the what our volume looks like, what our output looks like, how we run this business. And that, to me, had a little bit of an echo of an Allagash obviously pulled back. I mean, this would have been mm, about a decade ago. But there are some examples of breweries doing that type of pullback, that strategic pullback. Right. And saying we want to run the business a certain way. We can't do it at this size um, instead of taking outside cash to scale up or instead of spreading ourselves too thin or uh, uh, contracting or whatever, we're going to scale back. There's some increased maybe interest in doing that type of, um, you know, strategic reevaluation. My question for you is, um, you know, now that you've, you've done that and you've made a successful business out of that and you have the track record to prove it, what would you tell to other brewers, other owners, other operators who are thinking about their businesses, who are maybe at that, you know, I don't know, 50,000 barrels a year. I'm in six states. Uh, we have an opportunity to open up another tap room over here, but I don't know if I can handle that. What would you tell the people at that precipice? I know that every every state is different. Every market's different, but they're, you know, you've learned a lot in this time since you made that decision. Uh, tell us, you know, what you would, what if I were a brewery owner who is at that precipice, what would you tell me? Well, that's a really good question, Dave, and it's probably better answered by Deb. But since since you've got me, I can tell you that. <laughs> well, we're stuck with you, Dave. Yeah, we are. <laughs> uh, you got the second stringer. Um, that uh, fifty thousand barrels is a tough size when you are uh, say ten or fifteen thousand barrels. It's very comfortable. It's a small business. Um, you're low to the e ground. Yeah. yeah. It's easy to wrap your head around it. 50,000 barrels is a vulnerable place to be because, um, you are big enough that you have an appetite for the machinery, uh, the quality control equipment that you need, uh, that a large brewery needs to make shelf stable beer, but you have a hard time affording it. So you're in an awkward position and, um, 
you have to look at what your cost of doing business is. And I've alluded to this in the past in, in our previously that um, when you're selling in lots of states, you're spending money on marketing and salespeople. And the joke is that uh, 50% of your money is wasted. You just don't know which half. And if, <laughs> if you, if you look at all of the costs involved in selling that beer, um, it, it, it often doesn't pencil out. Now, sometimes a brewery can be successful in a given market for whatever reason it catches fire. Um, for example, uh, Brooklyn Lager, I was in Stock, Stockholm, Sweden, and Brooklyn Lager was everywhere. So for sure. whatever reason, people in Stockholm at the time I was there loved Brooklyn Lager. So every situation is different, but you really have to assess what your strengths and weaknesses are. I think starting maybe five years ago, there was a time when people, the original craft brewers, like guys my age, are you know getting into their 60s, they're getting tired, they're scarred, uh, and and it's just freaking hard. So you 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 can build volume with the idea of selling, and so mm. you know, and a lot of iconic breweries sold because it's the next logical step. But um, yep. like Lost Abbey did is another is another idea. So. If, if you're a 50,000 barrel brewery and you're selling all that you can, then you need to really do some soul searching. Is it worth going to the stair step? Meaning that capacity in a brewery or sales in a brewery can go like this, but the cost is more of a stair step. So every time you add capacity, all of those costs that I, I alluded to before are real. So you need to really think long and hard. Do I want to make that step? Because whenever, especially if you have to take a loan, because if you could do it out of cash flow, no problem. But if you have to get a loan, mm. you become very vulnerable. So you have to sure. spend your time to really think about, is it worthwhile for us to make this change? Are we comfortable in our current situation? Do we want to pull back and be smaller? Do we, um, do we want to invest in a new brewery, uh, you know, which is many, many, $20 million to build a, you know, a, a hundred, hundred, uh, hundred thousand or 200,000 barrel brewery. Is that really what you want to do yeah. at this point? Uh, and every situation is different. So I think people have to do a lot of soul searching. Yeah. Be consistent in whatever you decide to do. Better to do the soul searching before you do it than the soul searching oh God, yeah. after it goes wrong, after it goes wrong and wondering how everything came undone. Huh? Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong <laughs> with being a 50,000 barrel brewery if you're making money. I mean, if, if you're paying right. your people a living wage and you're respected in your community uh, and you're doing well, uh, maybe that's good enough. Maybe that's a lifestyle that you can maintain and you just need to chill out and just kind of work on dotting I's and crossing T's as far as quality yeah. as, as message to your customer and how you treat your employees um, and look at the long haul because there's nothing wrong. 50,000 barrel brewery is a perfectly legit brewery. It's just that to your point, depending on what the rest of the marketplace looks like that you're trying to sell against, you're, you have exposed flanks because you're big enough to have pretty, you know, sizable overhead, you know, you've got, uh, but, but you've got, uh, a, a peer group or a, a, a set that is very competitive and has very sharp elbows and is going for those off-premise placements that you are, so you've got to scale up your sales uh, organization. You've got to scale up all these things and you don't have the economies of scale that maybe your competitors do because they're doing, you know, 10 times as much volume as you are. 
Um, so yeah, if you can make it, it work at 50,000 50, barrels, can, more power to you. But to your point, it might be tough. That, that's that's true. Um, you know, and I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I look at taproom brewers and I read uh, in trade magazines, interviews, and they often say things like, we, we never brew the same beer every time. We're always making something different. And frankly, as a brewer, that makes me jealous because I would love to be able to be every day making a different beer and learning about hops and malts and interactions and yeast strains and processes and trying all of these things. But without a flagship brand, okay, if you're a, if you're a 500 or 1,000 barrel tap room and people are coming in and always saying, what's new, what's new, what's new, that's great as long as people care. And that may change. And people keep coming in. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And and that may change. Right. But you know, you look at a, sure. um, like like uh, like Kansas City uh, Brewing Company, KC Beer. They have a flagship in their Dunkel. Like, who would have guessed? I, I don't think that Steve Hawley imagined that that their Dunkel would be their flagship beer. You know, uh, analogous to uh, you know Scheinerbach, uh, in a sense uh, that 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 is the yep. beer that took. But having a flagship beer. If you're at 50,000 barrels is important. And if your flagship beer is an IPA, that kind of scares me a little bit because at some point, I'm guessing that IPAs will become like the new American standard. And then it's going to be a matter of price because if I can buy Lagunitas mm. for, which is a great beer and perfectly good at half the price, all IPAs are the same. It's the same thing that happened in Germany when you, when you drink a Pilsner. They're all great. So people sure. drink the one that's $8 a crate rather than, uh, you know, paying for a beer that's 15 or $20 a crate uh, or euros a crate. They'll, they'll go for the cheapest, really great beer. And that, that's kind yep. of dangerous. That's the dangerous end that we're all moving towards. Yeah. Well, and as a consumer, obviously, it's very exciting because that means that the quality floor yeah. has raised so high that man, I don't even have to think about it because any beer of this style is going to be a minimum level of quality for someone on the other end of the equation, like yourself, um, that becomes more challenging. But I mean, this is where I think New Glarus has been instructive or has been kind of a, uh, uh, not to, not to embarrass you by heaping praise upon you here, but like has been kind of a beacon, a beacon for what, you know, consistency and quality and, going deep instead of broad, what fruits that can yield uh, in even in industry that, you know, right now is is not growing at the rate that it that it once was. So I think I that's part of the reason we wanted to talk to you today, Daniel, was to to hear kind of how you guys did it. And, you know, we we appreciate the pearls of wisdom that you've relayed to us uh, <laughs> from Deb, the founder and president. The yeah. one I want to end on to just leave everyone with this aphorism or this idiom because i think it's brilliant can you repeat again her her uh thing about uh profits uh versus volumes yeah uh, 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 uh she says uh, uh profits are sanity volume is vanity i love that man <laughs> daniel carey thank you so much for joining us uh the story of new Glarus, the story of spotted cow and moon man and so many other fantastic beers we really appreciate you coming by tap lines today Thank you, Dave. I appreciate you including me. It was a lot of fun. All right. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout-out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, 
Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sherino, Managing Editor Tim McCurdy, and Art Director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.